This is an ABC podcast. On a cloudy afternoon in Sydney's south, Elizabeth Mora waited for a train at Rockdale Station on her way to university. I had this feeling that I was running late and I wasn't in the best mood. Suddenly, she heard a voice call out. Mika. And it was the voice of a much older man. I knew I recognised that voice. So Elizabeth spun around, scanning the crowd of commuters. I could see a really thin frame, the, the frame of an older Latin American man, long greyish hair stretched over his shoulders, muscular but frail. He looked much older than what he should look like. Mija. In Spanish, that means daughter. And all I could do was say, papi, because I hadn't seen my dad for 10 years. I'm Miyuki Okiranta, and on Earshot, the push and pull of family, even when everyone feels so far away. During a decade of no contact, rumours had filtered through to Elizabeth from the Ecuadorian community about her dad's precarious life. Whispers that he'd disappeared back to Ecuador, that he didn't hold a job down for long, that he might be looking for her. But in that moment of reunion on the train platform, Elizabeth wasn't concerned with where he'd been all this time. What played on her mind were the events that led up to him leaving and the unanswered question of whether coming to Australia had broken or saved their family. When I was a little kid, my dad and I used to play this game. It was common for me to walk around, you know, the tiny surface area of our apartment and say, Edgar, Edgar, donde estás? Which translates to Edgar, Edgar, where are you? And my dad was basically in close proximity from me, but I just wanted his attention. I just wanted him to know that I was there and I wanted him to hug me and he would run towards me and squeeze me and say, I am here, aquí estoy chiquito, aquí estoy mija. I had happy memories of my childhood, but I, but I also recognised that, um, that I didn't always have the full story. I came to Australia when I was five. I learnt English when I was in kindergarten. So before that period, my mum, my dad and my sister were basically my world. Waking up to the smell of spiced potatoes sizzling in the frying pan my dad, you know, taking out his chunky karaoke machine and serenading um, my mum whilst he was cooking. That was the, the two things that he loved. We weren't particularly stable. I remember a lot of the furniture that we had was like donations from the Smith family and like our first Christmas was also toys, donations from the Smith family and I, I didn't really get it. I was too young. My mother had already kind of gotten a sense of the experience because she came to Australia when she was 13. When I was growing up in Ecuador, I did not know what poverty was until I came to Australia. My mum was um, born in Ambato, Ecuador. She came as a consequence of political instability happening um, in Ecuador at the time, my grandfather lost his job as a civil engineer 
because he was working for the government. So um, when that government was overtaken by the military, all of the public servants lost their jobs. It was the Labour government of Gough Whitlam elected in 1972 which finalised the abolition of white Australia. My grandmother convinced my grandfather, let's go to Australia. It publicised around the world Australia's new non-discriminatory policy. When I came to Australia, I was 13 years old. Did not speak a word of English. And I think it was uh, the worst age that you could start your, your youth. Where we went was a house that had four rooms and in each room a family lived. So we were crowded. You know, she came from a middle-class Ecuadorian family. Her dad was uh, university educated. It was hard for me to accept. You go to high school, you see the students laughing at you and not knowing why. She came during that period of assimilation in Australia where, you know, you keep your culture to yourself at home and when you're in school, you're a wog or you're some other weird racialized stereotype. My parents, they just integrated to the Australian uh, lifestyle. Until now, my mother says that this is her country and she will never go back to Ecuador. My mother calls them yellow feet because they're peasants, because they're not educated people. I never had a good relationship with my mother. She forgot about Ecuador, but she did not realise how much you missed your own culture, your traditions, your own people. She did not know what I was going through at school. I don't know why it was so hard for me to speak English, but it was, and it, it has been. So what my uncles did was they just locked me in the room with a book and a pen. And they said, well, this is where you're going to spend your school holidays and this is how you're going to learn English. All you could do is just cry and, and say to yourself, how can you learn English locked in the room with a book and a pen? When I finished year 10, my mother expected me to continue and I knew that I could not make it. I got the courage to say to my mother that I was not going to continue. And she was very upset. She could not understand because she wanted me to be somebody. After leaving school, I had different jobs. And when I was in my 20s, I decided to go back home, back to Ecuador. I told my parents before I left that I will always regret the fact that they brought me to Australia. And my father said, one day you will come back and one day you will need us. And I said, never will I need you, never will I come back. Before I went home, I decided to go around the world. She was only supposed to stay for a week. People had told her, you know, New York, you don't need much time there to get the gist of the city. And to my surprise, everything was done in my own language. Everything was so wonderful. Oh, tu mamá se, se montó en el tren. Yo estaba en el tren número uno. 
I was in the subway in Manhattan one day, and a woman got on at 64th Street. I spotted her, but I never imagined she would talk to me. And I uh, said, do you mind telling me if this train goes to the Statue of Liberty? She was speaking in English and Spanish. At first I was worried she might be an undercover cop, but then she explained she was a tourist from Australia. And I said, where do you come from? And he says, Cuenca. Cuenca, Ecuador. Yes, Cuenca, Ecuador. And you, Ambato, Ecuador. Both of us could not believe it. He's like, you know what? I, I myself um, haven't been to the Statue of Liberty before. I could take you there if you think it's appropriate. That um, turned out to be my parents' first date. My dad was this young Chicano man living in New York, you know, ripped jeans with like this thick mullet that he was really proud of. My mum, on the other hand, was wearing pumps, so you can only imagine a tourist that wears pumps, like who does that? She did that, whereas my dad was kind of unaware of himself and he didn't care. He was so friendly, so outgoing, so happy. It was a big change for me. Nothing was impossible, everything was possible. I was able to be a little bit of myself with him. And in New York, during the weekend, you will have the best bands playing in the street for free. And he used to take me there. And he's such a great dancer. Salsa, merengue, bachata, just seeing him dance made me feel that this is what I wanted. Dancing, being with a happy person and being free. But unfortunately that happiness was because he was on drugs. And I did not know. After three months we kept seeing each other, Edgar and I. My funds were getting low. Uh, I asked if I could please move in with him and he said yes. At that time I thought that he was uh, employed full-time, but he was only working two days per week. So obviously he was not able to pay rent or have food or furniture in his room. All he had was a broken bed. So I said, what, what have I done? She didn't relocate to New York, she just overstayed her visa. That was obviously a problem because she was an illegal immigrant there. She didn't have rights. One day I put lipstick so I can go and greet him. But he came one hour earlier than I expected him. And he got so upset. Why did you put lipstick on? Who is he? And he hit me so hard and I didn't know what to do. But I was so shocked, he got wild. After a year, the doctor said that I was expecting a baby. I couldn't run away because I was illegal. I couldn't go anywhere, I had no family, so all I had was him. But he was so happy, he, he was uh, another person. He said that for the very first time he was going to have something that belongs to him. 
My dad was born in one of the most dangerous towns in Cuenca, Ecuador, which was called El Vado. Robberies, domestic violence was kind of rife there. At home, you learn good manners, good morals, and rules. But on the street, you learn a lot of other things, good and bad, but you learn a lot. I came from a very poor family. I grew up without my father, so my mom had to work. We live in a tiny room. My mom, my brother and I slept together in one bed. He never had that opportunity to be able to depend on anyone for what he needed. From a young age, he had to look out for himself. When I was a kid, my mom had epilepsy. And I suffer a lot because of her disease. I could usually tell when she was about to have a seizure. Being the older son, he would have to support his mother's head so that it wouldn't affect her. The seizures can come out of nowhere. It could be on the street, in the theater, while she was sleeping, anywhere. Sometimes she will have seizures on the toilet. My dad was witness to all of that, but he didn't understand it. One day, my mom ended up in the hospital. Half of her body was paralyzed. She couldn't get out of bed anymore. I remember a young doctor come up to me. He told me he had bad news for me. He said, it's better if you ask God to let her die. I knew it was true. I was only 11 years old. I hadn't finished primary school yet, but I promised my mom I'd look after my brother because I was the only one who could. A few days later, she passed away. In Ecuador, I guess, to be the child of a single mother without a father that has, that has officially recognized you, you are already socially stigmatized. But then to lose the only support mechanism that he really had in his life, he internalized a real sense of abandonment, a sense that he, he wasn't worth anything. I dropped out of primary school. My uncle Jorge took us in. He gave us a room to live in and he fed us too. What my father didn't do, my uncle did for me, in his own way. My dad grew up in a patriarchal society where the only way to express your feelings was to either you know, show how strong you were or basically to get drunk. Because unfortunately, my, the uncle that was looking after him was also an alcoholic. So he didn't really have great role models in his life. When I was 19, my uncle said he could get me a job as a jeweler in New York City. I applied for a travel visa, but it was rejected. They said, once I got there, I would start working illegally. And it was true. That was my intention. So Jorge gave me 1,300 US dollars to go to Mexico, and I took advantage of that opportunity. I got to Mexico, Everything went as planned. Then, I crossed the river. It was just like in the movies. I remember the immigration police helicopter yelling at me to go back or they'll shoot me. 
but they didn't shoot because I was alone. On the other side was Texas. I had arrived in America. I liked it. I began a new life in New York. President Reagan did sign the sweeping new Immigration Reform Act today. Millions of illegal aliens will be eligible for amnesty and will be I able to I used to talk to him and say, you know, Dad, how was life in New no York? And then my dad would kind of say, well, I like to dress well and I like to eat well. I was really young, you know, I came to New York when I was 19. Everything went well. I shared my money with my cousins, my aunts and my brother. I always got them something nice for their birthdays. But nobody told me to save. Not even a cent. I spent all the money I made. I didn't know that in the future I might need it. I was 28 when I met Eugenia. I'll never forget that time. She was the first person to ever celebrate my birthday. It was a big surprise when I found out I was going to be a dad. I was very happy. I remember when Eugenia's waters broke. We needed to go to the hospital, but it was far away, and I didn't have money for a taxi, so we went by bus. Poor lady. We were so poor. A lot of people think about a love, but in my case it was not love. It was a matter of staying with him, facing domestic violence, or coming back to my mother's place in Australia. And he, my mother, what have you done with your life? The fact that I didn't finish high school, the fact that I was nobody. It was best for me to stay back in New York. After five years, he was still using marijuana and alcohol. He became worse and then he lost his job completely and that was when I was expecting Stephanie. I was very poor because I was not able to work. I had no shoes and there was nothing in that fridge. I could not take it anymore. I wanted to move back to uh, Ecuador so I went to immigration to ensure that all the papers were up to date. Once again, I was trying to run away. But uh, the American uh, authorities, they checked and realized that I have overstayed my five years. So I was given 72 hours to leave. I could not go anywhere. But where I came from, and I, where I came from was Australia. So that's when I begged my parents to bring me back here. I knew that my girls needed a future. And for the very first time, Australia was the country that my daughters needed. For the very first time, I thank my parents that they brought me to Australia. But that was because I was a mother. So it was only then that I realized why my parents came to Australia. They were thinking about us. That was very difficult for my mum. She knew that, you know, coming to Australia would only place more pressure on my dad emotionally. If it were up to her, she wouldn't have wanted my dad to come. 
I took advantage of the fact that he did not read or write, so he never knew that uh, he came here as a permanent resident because we were married. The very first day that he came over, I said, Mom, uh, he's only here to bring my daughters and he's going back on Monday because he's a drunk man and he uses marijuana. My father hears me say this and what he does is he says to my husband, you're not going to leave my daughter. My granddaughters are not going to live without a father. Look, you have a permanent residency. So what you, my daughter is telling you, it's not the truth. So he comes and tells me, your father is going to help me with the tax file number, with the bank account, with this and that and that. So I'm going to stay here. I think it was, obviously, I think it was difficult for my dad because he didn't have any knowledge of the English language. Coming here and feeling unable to access a job or unable to communicate, unable to kind of do simple things like get a bus, it was really a, a, a kind of a, an experience of powerlessness. But for my sister and I, my dad was always there for us, staying home and cooking and helping us get ready for school and so forth. We loved him, you know, around. But I'm pretty sure that they saw a lot of things that they didn't want to remember. Things started to escalate when I was 13 years old. There were times where my dad, you know, was really paranoid about where my mum was, or sometimes he would come home really late, really drunk. Or sometimes he wouldn't come home at all. Or sometimes my sister and I, we would have to call the police because we were scared for my mum's safety. So many people had said, leave him, leave him, leave him, enough is enough. So I got the papers and I said, you need to sign these papers for school. All you need to do is sign there. So he did, but he didn't know that it was my divorce papers. My mum decided to put an AVO on my dad so he couldn't get close to her because she was concerned, you know. The ABO is placed and as soon as he hits me, uh, he's been told that I'm going to ring the police and he's going to go to jail. So he leaves. My dad didn't have our phone numbers. Dad wasn't allowed to get in close proximity to us. My dad didn't know how to read or write, so even if he wanted to, he couldn't do either of those things. I was really scared that I, it would mean that I would never see my dad again. At that time, I was under the impression that Stephanie was the one that could not live without the father. But never did I see that Elizabeth was the one that loved her father most. She missed her father very much. It basically was a dramatic cut. It was hard because because we hadn't had that moment to say, you know, Dad, you're leaving, but, you know, that doesn't mean that you're not our dad. So I, I didn't really feel like... I, I could admit that I wanted to see him. I didn't want to admit it to myself. It would mean that I, would, I was betraying my mum's experience and I was kind of underestimating the weight of the decision she had to make. But at that time... When I got divorced, I did not want them to speak about him. I did not want to say anything about it. 
and that was wrong on me because I have never forgiven him. You don't know the peace that I now have inside of me not being with my mother and with him. I didn't know that I was a feminist until Elizabeth told me. I believed that it was my responsibility to inform women from the Latin American community about domestic violence. And I organized with the police and other community leaders to have this information session. But unfortunately, uh, the community was not ready for this, the men. The men were not ready for this. They became aggressive, they sent messages, they said that that is something that I should not be talking about, that I should be learning how to cook. I got so upset that I said, okay, I'll do it on my own. So 60 people came. Yes, and I'm just very happy that Rosie Batty spoke out about domestic violence because for the very first time I was able to speak out. I was hopeful to Eugenia. Yes. I did bad things to her. Things she'll never forget. Never. I see it clearly now. To be honest, she did nothing to deserve all the bad things I did to her. I paid the bills in New York, but I made her suffer a lot. I understand her. How much pain I caused her. And she just tolerated it. She did it for our daughters. When my mum saw my dad, she saw the human that he could be. You know, if his mother hadn't died, if he had gone to school, um, if he had had, you know, role models um, to guide him, I think that perhaps it would have been a different story. I haven't set a good example as a father. I've had problems, just like anybody, but I can overcome them thanks to my daughter's love. For their sakes, I'm trying harder. I didn't have high expectations of seeing my dad again. Then I hear um, someone say, Mija, which means daughter. And it was just this familiar masculine voice, Mika, Mika. And um, yeah, and I, and I just turn around and I see that it's my dad. We just both uh, cried. We just never expected that A, that we would meet again, and that B, that when we would meet, it would be so comfortable. Yeah, and my dad told me, you know, that he had, um, yeah, he had moved to the Central Coast. He had a new partner, and uh, he had this job um, in construction. You know, he still had his issues with, with alcohol, but he was trying his best, and that he was okay, you know, he was okay. That year, Elizabeth spent her first Christmas in a decade with her dad and his new partner. The path to healing has been long and hard for Elizabeth and Edgar, but they do have the rest of their lives to figure it out. And it all began with that serendipitous moment on a train platform. We 
we got on the train, he's like, remember when you were small and used to run around and you used to say, Edgar, Edgar, donde estas? Where are you? Where are you? And I'm like, yeah, I remember. And then he's like, well, I'm here now. The Mora family story was lovingly stitched together by Selena Shannon, with sound design and mixing by Judy Rapley. I'm Miyuki Okiranta. Join me next time for Earshot.